in case you missed it on Newsbreak. A treasure chest of journeys. From a temple in India. My great-grandfather brought the Murti and came in his veil. Seeds of time sowed to create new memories. Sam brought these Binda and so on, because these other things were not available in South Africa. A legacy that stands the test of time. Join us on Newsbreak Talk this November as we trace the legacy of the 1860 indentured labourers to your roots. Newsbreak Talk every weekend at 12 noon with me, Taresh Haripashad. Celebrating 160 years since the arrival of Indians in South Africa on Newsbreak Talk. Yeah, would you believe a month is gone? Hey, it is a month since we started spending every Sunday reflecting on the uh, vast gains made by the 1860 settlers. 160 years this year, this month to be precise, and we at Newsbreak Talk decided, well, you know, um, our program or our segment is not going to do justice. In fact, an entire month is not going to do justice to the um, gains that Indian origin people have made, or rather Indians have made uh, from 1860 to now. So we decided to devote an entire month to talking about this. We've looked at specific issues and I hope stuff that has resonated with you. Uh, welcome to the program today as we, you know, raise, or uh, rather, um, drop the curtain on our 1860 showcase. I'm Tadeh Shari Prashad and um, looking forward to having a very important conversation with you. Um, and you know, um, and, and, and there was a particular method to my madness in the way I constructed this particular conversation. Um, and with a lot of people that we speak with, whether it is um, the South African government, whether it is local government, um, activists, academics, uh, historians, cultural uh, interpreters, um, everybody, what they say is that we need to understand and define the Indian story, the 1860 story within the context and the confines of contemporary South Africa. Uh, and if we look at contemporary South Africa, it's the 16 days of activism campaign for no violence against women and children. And it is such a major issue in South Africa right now. It is definitely high on, the, on President Cyril Ramaphosa's agenda in terms of him constantly uh, talking about this and raising this issue. So within that framework, I wanted to look at that 1860 story within the context of uh, violence against women and children. Um, and I specifically wanted to look at um, the sorts of um, present-day patriarchal norms and systems that continue. Um, you know, are women um, from the 1860 era to 160 years later in 2020, what level of development have they had? What level of emancipation have they had? Um, what we understand of these women is that they came and they worked in sugarcane uh, farms and they raised children and uh, manned the house. 160 years later, what are they doing? To what degree? How has it changed? When you measure it up against um, the role of men in society, where is that? Um, so I really wanted to put a gender 
dynamic onto the 1860 story. I'm trying to merge the two very important topics, and I hope you can you know understand that thread and and take um, part in this conversation and let me know about the way you, as a woman of Indian origin, a South African Indian, is treated in your home, in your community. What level of respect? What level of um, support? What level of um, Fear, <laughs> that's a bad word, but level of fear, you know, how how much is your word the gospel in your home? Or do you still have to, uh, you know, always subjugate to your husband, to the man, to the elders, to the seniors? Um, so what is that role of that South African Indian woman in your home? Tell me your story. I want to know. Um, give me examples of it as well. Where is it? You know, often um, th- th- there's this... Um, little joke that um, happens in homes that um, I don't know if it's a joke because I don't find it funny but uh, it's often said that let the men eat first what is that what is that why you know I always question that so those kinds of examples do these sorts of patriarchal norms still exist in present day South African Indian origin culture I want to know about that. So I thought the best person to speak with about this and to also give us a, a tiny history lesson and then zero in on where it is today currently was Dr. Devi Rajab. Of course, she needs no introduction. Sociologist, journalist, author. She's written so much of volumes of work about um, uh, women in the Indian origin community and their emancipation. I coined that beautiful phrase from Pots to Politics in a paper she wrote last year. I was quite floored by that. So I spoke with her about a brief history lesson about... Um, you know, the role and the origins of the 1860 Indian woman to where it is now. What would, you know, my 1860 month of focus be without having a conversation with you? So I'm very happy to have you on the program. Um, welcome, mm-hmm. to, welcome to the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. And I think I'm trying to create a mix between the 16 days of activism campaign that we see and the 1860 narrative. I'm trying to merge the two by looking at this issue of female oppression and fem- and patriarchy um, against uh, females. I want to take it back briefly to just a very tiny history lesson. Around the 1860 time, what sort of prejudices um, was seen against women from the research that you've done? Well, at that time, uh, women were very cloistered and women uh, were relegated to the the periphery, or not the periphery, but rather within the context of the home. So the women were essentially homemakers and so forth. However, they were women who went out to do manual labor, and we know that very well, that uh, they accompanied their husbands and men generally uh, as cane cutters uh, and contributed to the family income. So the women did participate in labor. However, they still had the status of being a woman and were subjected to lower pay uh, by the authorities um, and uh, even in terms uh, of the food portions, men were actually uh, more advantaged than women. So that is uh, a general um, scenario of women at that time. Yeah. 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 And it progressed over the years, hasn't it? Um, 
on one hand, you know, you had a push for education and a push for, um, you know, young girls to be educated. But at the same time, um, you also had the, the creation of a culture where, um, you know, young girls were also married and had about 13 children in their lifetime, were uh, seen to run the house as their only focus. Talk to me about those two streams around the early 1900s. You know, if you look at worldwide trends towards women before the suffragettes and so forth, women's status globally was the same. Uh, They were subject to patriarchal values and, and oppression and so forth. However, class in some respects um, uh, helped some women to break through the barrier, the concrete barrier, so to speak. And, and I'm coming back now to Indian women in South Africa who uh, were sent to medical schools like in Edinburgh, like Dr. Gunham, for example, and her generation, Dr. Gunham, was one of the first Indian women who uh, came from a privileged middle-class family and whose parents actually sent her to Edinburgh to study alongside Dr. Monty Naika and uh, an A.M. Padiachi family, um, several of them who went to study in Edinburgh, the Chetties, of course, is a big family who went off to Scotland to study. But here were middle-class people who made um, uh, spaces for, for their children uh, to study abroad. However, at the same time, Dr. Gunham talks about how she would go into households and force and kind of coerce the parents to let their daughters go and become nurses and uh, uh, yeah, and help in the healthcare professions. The same applies to wanting girls to go out to study and and to become teachers and and so forth. Yeah, Dr. Yeah. Ansia Singh yeah. is also another product of a middle class family where three girls were sent out to study. Um, in Edinburgh, one did medicine, the other did law, and the other did teaching. But they were the exceptions at the yeah, time. Yeah, exceptions. Around that, that time, my mother was a product of just a Depot School Standard 4 education. There yeah. were also men who stopped at Standard 4, like um, M.L. Sultan and, uh, and others. However, they were able to make way in business, whereas the the um, women of an equivalent education were relegated to the kitchen. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. And I think it formed and a major fodder for you uh, in, in, that, in that that amazing term that you um, you coined, from pots to politics. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Talk mm-hmm. to me about that. You know, the because c- you noted a growth mm-hmm. in women in latter, you know, in, in later stages. You know, post that era that you're talking about there of of the um, Dr. Gunams. Yeah. Let's talk about the emergence. At what point then did Indian origin women in communities start getting more of a push for education and a sort of economic emancipation? Right. It, um, it certainly, uh, when they came out, you know, as I mentioned earlier in an earlier interview, when they came out, they came, they came in mass 
in response to Gandhi's call, right? So it was legitimate. The husbands were happy to let them go and, and participate in a movement that, um, or that the whole community supported, yeah? But it was a phase that they moved into and out of and back into where they were, yeah. So although we say from pots to politics, it should go from pots to politics and back to pots yeah. um, because that's exactly what happened. And then gradually um, you find that Indian, with, uh, after Indian-aided education, uh, I'm talking loosely, of course, and I think much of these questions that you ask me uh, need to be researched, and that would be a wonderful research topic where they would trace the development of Indian women's emancipation yeah. in terms of education and so forth. Yeah? When I did my book on Indian women from indenture to democracy, Right. In this book, I found that there was an amazing renaissance of the three generations of Indian women who just from their great-grandmother's day, how they amazingly went into law and became judges and magistrates and uh, went into engineering and medicine, did medical research. So this book actually um, catalogs the, the, this, this whole growth, this growth spurt that happened, I think, post-60. Um, although we fought against Indian um, education and the separation of the Universities Act, uh, there were many people who went under protest to the universities and subsequently got their degrees and, and so forth and worked within the apartheid system to reach great heights. Uh, and then, of course, when apartheid was dismantled, there were all these women coming out of the woodwork because they were actually mutating quietly under uh, this is my this is my understanding. You know, people may have a different view, but the point that I'm really trying to say is that there has been a very very remarkable um, a change from indenture to democracy. Absolutely, and I think you know we are cutting it short here because of our limited time with you, respecting your time frame as well. But I think where we look at it now and. I want to focus on patriarchy within the Indian origin community and I want to ask you flat out, what are your thoughts on it currently? Uh, I know you will have the issue of classism and, and the issue of, of, of socio-economic classes when looking at a question like this. But what is your assessment of where patriarchy is in South Africa 160 years since Indians arrived in South Africa? Hmm. I, um, yeah, I think that uh, it's pretty much there in society generally, wherever you go in the world, men are still, or they may help you to wash the dishes. Um, it doesn't mean that they are totally emancipated. There isn't a total notion of total gender equity across the board. Yeah, um, there, uh, there. However, having said that, women still have an opportunity to reach right to the top if they wanted to. The only problem is the barriers that they are still in allowing them to, uh, to gain access to top positions and uh, leadership positions and so forth. But again, that's 
also um, uh, an aspect that one needs to look at. What are women wanting? What are professional women wanting today? Are they wanting to have the the, um, high mobility as far as a career is concerned, or are they wanting to have more of a balance between having marriage and family and children, you know, Um, and then sort of keeping the profession alongside these other values that are fairly central to women. So those are very crucial questions that um, that are now beginning to engage professional women who are struggling sometimes to keep that balance. While there may be this allowance for economic and career emancipation uh, for women, which is a, you know, a great signal that patriarchy is reaching a comfortable point to an end perhaps, but at the same time that same woman still has to go home and put food on the table so she's got a sort exactly. of a, 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 a yeah. double role but but leaving it there then dr rajab to another point and as you spoke this occurred to me you mentioned the professional and we often talk when we talk about the growth of women and the emancipation of women we talk about those making a name for themselves professionally whether in academics whether in business whether in um, science what about the the, the the so-called um, unprofessional woman who uh, you know lives in the, uh, the more heart of the community, sometimes even in rural spaces, uh, you know, working um, informal jobs in informal sectors, they still face a greater degree because, of course, they don't have too much of an economic leg to stand on. Talk to me about that woman in a modern-day context because there's many of them in the community. Yeah. Well, you know, that is closely linked to poverty. And since our uh, poverty datum line is so low and uh, we have such a high degree of poverty in in this country, that equates to women's, uh, women's submergence within the context of poverty. And so women are more disadvantaged um, as a result of, of poverty. However, in the informal settlements, uh, there, you know, there is, I, I wanted to say earlier that you can't really talk about patriarchy without talking about matriarchy. And matriarchy works very well in rural areas because one tends to feel sorry for rural women. And in actual fact, uh, there are some rural women who are so strong in managing and keeping families together and going out and tending to the to the soil and many of them are raising children without uh, men so there's a wonderful story that about Hillary Clinton I don't know whether we have time there's <laughs> a wonderful story uh, where Hillary Clinton goes to Bangladesh and she meets the Bangladeshi woman and and they don't quite know who she is but they say to her um, uh, Hillary do you have uh, children and she says yes I, I have a daughter you only have one child they say oh poor Hillary do you have goats no 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 I don't I don't do you work no I don't work oh so you don't have land you don't have goats you don't have you only have one child oh you poor such a poor woman (laughs) 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 so so, you know that anecdote actually drew (laughs) drew this whole analysis of what rural women are thinking about urbanized highly urbanized women (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. Well, great to speak with you. But I think a final question is, as you leave us then, 160 years of um, Indians in South Africa, we're talking about the issue of patriarchy. Um, 
and, and, and you've often left us with a great sort of roadmap to navigate through these social challenges, whether it was identity, whether it was class or, you know, whether it was um, uh, uh, women empowerment issues. How do you think it should progress now to achieve a greater sort of emancipation for Indian origin women within the South African community to break and make a dent against that hallmark of patriarchy? Well, I think uh, our biggest challenge is also BEE. Because in a country now, after 25 years, uh, if we are still going to dissect um, women uh, along racial lines and and so forth, then they will, uh, of necessity or ultimately, be a ceiling on how far uh, women of any ethnic group can rise. I mean, the fact that we have Kamala Harris who has reached the top in American society uh, would never have happened if she was born here in Africa now. Yeah? So, at some point or the other, for women's emancipation to occur, uh, sans race and, and, uh, and, and ethnicity and so forth, they would have to be an open an open um, opportunity for all South Africans, regardless of race or ethnicity. Hmm? So the point I'm trying to say is Indian women would be able to rise to a certain level for as long as BEE stipulates where their place is. If that is removed at some point or the other, and all women are on a level ground, then we can say the best comes to the top. And if it happens to be a woman of Indian origin, then she will have that opportunity to reach to the top. Wonderful. Dr. Rajab, great to speak with you. Thanks for sparing me your time. All right. Welcome. Good yeah. luck. Bye. Bye again. Bye. Gender-based violence is a crime committed by men, but it is encouraged by silence. If you hear or see something, say something. As long as we ignore the cries and suppress the voices of the abused, gender-based violence will not stop. Don't turn a blind eye. So that was Dr. Devi Rajab talking, you know, a bit of a history lesson and also some sort of contemporary uh, perspective into the, the role of um, women 160 years later in South Africa. So I really want to open up that conversation to you on WhatsApp. Um, you can go ahead and, and text us your thoughts about it. Um, I'd like the woman to speak up. I mean, how um, emancipated, how uh, free, how empowered do you feel uh, when you take these stories? of your ancestors, your female ancestors, uh, into account. Um, and you know, just to pick up and remind you a bit of the brief history Dr. Devi Rajab left us with, um, you know, women worked in the sugarcane uh, sugar fields as well, uh, but at a lower rate, lower pay, they still had to go home and... Um, raise families, give birth to children, put food on, you know, literally cooked food onto the table. Um, how much has changed in 160 years later? Because um, you know, it's this it's an interesting question, and I'm going to speak to my next guest about that as well. Uh, this thing about, uh, yeah, men help with the dishes. Uh, and if you analyze that particular sentence and you look at it, um, men help with the dishes, men help with the chores, men help with housework. 
Why are they helping? Shouldn't it be a dual responsibility? You live there, don't you? As a human, it is also your responsibility to ensure that things are done. So help means that ultimately it is the primary objective and goal and job of a woman and men just supplement and help. Um, I wonder what your thoughts on that word is, help, you know, if you analyze it um, in terms of its context. Um, why is it that men help with chores? Surely it should be a divided sort of thing, or am I just expecting a utopic uh, end to patriarchy that's you know possibly never going to happen? So therefore, I'd love to know your thoughts, women. What do you feel, and men as well? You know, 160 years later, and surely you've also had um, mothers and grandmothers who've worked the sugarcane fields. You know, what lessons have they given you? What sacrifices have they made for you uh, to become your best possible self? Uh, go ahead and let me know. And remember, you can also call us 89310 um, and we can take the conversation forward. Family means being there for the ones you love. Giving them your time, your love, and of course, food. At Spa, we make that easier. We have all the services you need to pay bills or send and receive money. But more than that, we have all your essentials and products you really love at great prices every day. So you don't have to spend time running from one place to the next. You can get it all done for less at Spa. Spa, we're here for you so you can be there for your family. Family means being there for the ones you love. Giving them your time, your love, and of course, food. At Spa, we make that easier. We have all the services you need to pay bills or send and receive money. But more than that, we have all your essentials and products you really love at great prices every day. So you don't have to spend time running from one place to the next. You can get it all done for less at Spa. Spa, we're here for you so you can be there for your family. So it's news break talk today and we are taking the conversation forward on um, how far uh, the uh, eighteen sixty narrative has has, has um, leveled out for Indian origin women. Uh, Ramba Mudli says, enjoying the show, hope years to come these 1860 settlers will never be forgotten. Uh, Bob says, good day, how do we trace our roots in India? Is there an agency? Well, I think that's something we've been covering a lot, Bob. I don't really have uh, that information on hand as yet. It's not related to the topic uh, uh, on the table. Uh, but I think the best place for you to go, the Indian Consul General, they do provide a great uh, sort of service in this regard. So, um, yeah, so that is the the important uh, attention that we're focusing here today on 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 the program, um, and I think when you when you look at um, the sixteen days of activism, you know, campaign, just a, a bit of uh, an insight into that. It's twenty two years since South Africa embarked on the United Nations led sixteen days of activism for no violence against a woman and children. Um, obviously, you'll remember that this campaign, you know, it runs annually, 25th November, which is actually the International Day of the Elimination of Violence Against Women, to the 10th of December, which is International Human Rights Day. Um, and a great theme that's going through this year is um, is women's economic justice for non-violent and non-sexist South Africa. Um, also, you know, stemming forward from what Dr. Devi Rajab says, she cited the Black Economic Empowerment Policy as being a major stumbling block for the emancipation of Indian origin women. She says that um, you know that is further dividing a divided group, a marginalised group 
providing another split into the system by bringing race and into the into the mix um and that this should you know some be something that's looked at in order to create a platform where um a woman's capability is not determined on her skin color so that's an interesting point when you look at the current theme of a woman's economic justice here's ayla who sent us a voice note ayla ramburan hello there Hi Teresh we shouldn't worry about the 1860 settlers they have come they have planted the seeds they have brought so many generations into the country that have made strides of advancements in this country but when you look at our constitution and what it really has embodied in it especially in the gender aspect of the constitution i myself had served for 2 years at the codesa uh, uh, sessions and during that time i served on the gender advisory committee and lots were put into the constitution but today there's so much of gender based violence i'm just wondering why not we get around and put that right and bring about a discussion with mr macmaraj with mr cyril ramaphosa and rolf rolf mayer with whom i did a lot of work and apart from all of that having heard the dr devi rajab who better than herself to serve the indian community in the political arena if kamla harris can work in america why not give our indian women a say in the political field and uh, this should be taken very seriously by mr ramaphosa because i know him and worked with him and i hope he is listening ayla ramburan i want to clap for you like i feel like i need to clap for that like yeah Ayla, uh what a um yeah wow I loved your voice note a lot. Thank you so much. Uh Kodesa, hey, the gains of Kodesa, the outcomes of Kodesa. Uh wonderful to look into that and to, to see where it is and um yeah, no, absolutely powerful. Um we'll keep that in mind and definitely aim to bring those conversations um to you because I think um you raised a really solid point there about Kodesa talks. Uh you know the construction of democracy um having constructed it uh is it destructing so that's definitely uh, something to look into thanks for that thought um and you've really really given me a planted a seed there thank you okay so now um we are going to be talking to my next guest and i'm really look- looking forward to this particular conversation uh it gives me great honor to be inviting social and gender activist pamela padiachi onto the program she's the founder of the um of a growing online gender empowerment platform called um one one woman's pact um is is that correct i get it right pamela is it uh, a woman pact or is it one woman pact hi trish thanks for having me it's actually the social arm of the foundation the foundation is called one woman pact but the social arm of it is actually called a woman's pact 
Ah, okay, I see the difference there. Thanks so much, Pamela. We appreciate your time. Of course, um, you know, an interesting mix of conversation here today. We're talking 1860 meets the 16 Days of Activism campaign. And uh, mm-hmm. we've already spoken to Professor Dr. Devi Rajab, and she, you know, gave us a history lesson as to where women have come from, where they've gone, and also some of the setbacks and roadblocks uh, that they've faced. Uh, you know, before we get into some of the, you know, areas of work that you focused on, I want to ask you your assessment of the amount of emancipation um, women have post-1860 in the country. Of course, it's, it's at a better level than 1860, but how different is it from that time? Well, I think we must start from, from uh, the point that there, there is a major difference. I think in terms of the equality level, the opportunities and Um, the access or ability for women to grow and reach their full human potential is much different now as opposed to 1860. And that's come with a lot of hard work. It's come with also um, the adoption of different sorts of policies and legislatures that actually uh, give a bias to women to sort of create a society where women rank up a little. But while saying that, we must also acknowledge that while the gains have been, um, I won't say tremendous, but they've been positive, there's a lot more that needs to be done. You see, we still live in a society where it's patriarchy and power, right? And if you have to deconstruct, and I loved when you spoke earlier and you spoke a little bit about how we deconstruct society at a theoretical level almost. Power and patriarchy underpins the socialization of women, right? Men, um, and, and this is how you would tie in the gains women have made in terms of overall emancipation and link that to gender-based violence, which is important going into the 16 days of activism. It's because men abuse women, not because society tells them that it's okay, but they do it because it's an expression of control and power. So that's very much tied into it. Um, but if I have to go back to your original question, I would say that while there have been tremendous gains, if you look at what has happened in the United States, having the first um, minority woman uh, being elected as a deputy uh, or a vice president, that's an enormous achievement in 2020, coming from a Trump era. That's enormous. That talks about the overall emancipation of women and the courage of societies to actually say women can be in that powerful position and actually take a country as big as America forward. So that's a gain. But if you go back down to community level and to grassroots, you'll still find that women on the lower levels of, of societal development or even social status are still being um, de-emancipated almost. Because they don't and, have access to Yeah, that's where I want to I, I wanna talk to you about this. Because uh, you know, I, I think a fundamental of us, uh, and specifically for this month, what I've been trying to, um, been trying to achieve here um, was to look at that 1860 narrative, um, you know, not within a vacuum, uh, not within the, the, the sort of theoretical and uh, sort of sentimental um, construct of it, but to look at it within how it plays out on a day-to-day basis in 2020. 
And I want to take the conversation with you now at a very local level. You know, I started off the program the, uh, and, and I made a comment about this sort of joke and nobody's responded to it on WhatsApp. I, I thought they would and then we could have, you know, explored that a little bit better to give us a social understanding or community understanding of, 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 a, of a line like that. But coming back to that point where, you know, often you hear at functions or even in the home sometimes, let the men eat first. Do things like that and other examples of placing men in a, super, a superiority um, status, does that still exist in Indian origin communities today? It's the ultimate conditioning of female, Tarish. We are still conditioned, even as we are raised as young girls in our homes and in our families, to believe that a man um, is entitled to more power, and therefore when you go into an Indian home, you will still have a young girl as opposed to a young male when her dad comes home, having to make sure his meals are ready, uh, even if there's a sibling relationship going on, you would still have the young girl ironing the clothes of, of, her, of her brothers and whatnot. So it goes back to the whole conditioning of a young girl. It starts very, very early on. And I don't think we, particularly as Indians, I think it's, it's getting better. And I think I'd be uh, terribly wrong to say that in this day and age, it's, it's, it's not uh, you know, better. It is getting better because um, there is some sort of equalization between the genders, but it still does exist. So I agree completely with you that it happens. It's the ultimate socialization and the conditioning of the girl child. How does how do you That's change it then? Uh, and who should? Because uh, often, you know, I know the answer is going to be we need to, like, you know, empower our girls and change the yeah. speech, etc. Yeah, but it's, but it's surely the whole family plays a role because even yes. it is that little brother alongside that sister that needs to be taught the lesson to ensure that there's a holistic, complete, socially rounded way of breaking that sort of perception. Yeah, I think, it's, I think you did it spot on and I couldn't say it any better. It's not up to a female to do that. It's not up to a male to do that. It starts in the family unit. It's as much the responsibility of a father as it is that of a mother. Um, but I also think it's beyond that. It, it must become something that is fostered within communities. I used to love at one uh, time when I used to read a lot about Ubuntu, and they say, you know, it takes a village to raise, raise a child. Well, it takes a village as well to deconstruct, to break down gender roles, and to redefine it. In 2020, that is what it's going to take. It's going to take communities rallying against the idea of a new gender. I mean, can we even in 2020 correctly define gender? There are so many randoms. There are so many type A's, type B's, type C's and type D's that you can't even, uh, we'd be very conformist in our definition if we have to say this is what defines the female, this is what defines the male. So it, it needs a, a, an entire 360 degree turn almost. Yeah. In the way we are addressing gender and then the role that we are attaching to gender. So, and, th and that must ultimately find expression within communities. It cannot find expression in boardrooms or in dialogues or in, uh, you know, highfalutin events because we can have the conversation all good and well. But if it does not translate into something which is actionable and which drives uh, a program almost that says we live in a society where we are equal as men, female, whatever we might define ourselves as, 
and our opportunities, therefore, become equal, that would be, for me, more progressive almost. Yeah, yeah, wonderfully said. And I think uh, at this point, I'm going to invite you uh, on WhatsApp to please share us your thoughts. Share, um, you know, the kind, you know, your idea on what we're talking about, what happens on the ground in your home, the way those gender roles are created from a young age between the girl child and the boy child, um, those sorts of issues. Or maybe it doesn't exist at all because Zahir Danbar from Phoenix tells me, I have never heard or ever heard or witnessed at any function of all races and religions where I went to uh, that let the men eat first. Uh, I've never heard that. Um, so maybe it doesn't exist. Um, I do recall that I've seen that. I've heard that. So uh, it was just something I put out there based on my social um, you know, assumption of the situation. But if it doesn't exist, yes, tell us it doesn't exist and let us know that there doesn't seem to be a sort of a gender superiority role currently going um, on. Uh, Mala says, a woman of Indian descent have made strides compared to the woman of indenture. I've always noticed that in homes where husbands and wives are working, in many homes it's the wife that goes to work and when she gets back home, she has to cook into her house chores without any assistance from her partner. So that's a sort of a balancing there that Mala brings to the, to the conversation. Um, and why I'm zeroing in on this sort of local community in the home um, expression of this gender role is because ultimately it plays a bigger role globally, uh, politically, economically, socio-geographically even, doesn't it, Pamela? Because what happens in that home where you give this message to this young girl that you can do this and you can do that and your brother does this and your mother does this and your father does that, it provides a particular conditioning um, in that home which finds some sort of global uh, perspective going into bigger spaces. Explain that to me. Yeah, I think, you know, Sharish, let's simplify it if, if I were to. You know, if you have to listen to any woman who has so-called made it in life, I promise you the majority of those women would say, my father raised a goddess or my father raised a warrior. And so those women feel almost, and, and I'm, I'm saying this from personal experience because I, I have hosted enough of these sorts of events and, and had conversations with enough women to speak from a perspective of actually having some authority on the matter. Um, a lot of the time, women who feel that they are capable enough to lead are women who are raised by men, particularly men, and even for the majority of the time, women themselves, men who thought that they were worthy and who gave them the chance. You understand? So if we go back from, from that very simplistic point of view, when a man shows a woman that he judges her based on her capability more than her gender and respects her on her capability more than anything else, there is a greater chance of that woman understanding her potential better and driving our own potential home. So I think when we speak of it, we must always um, understand it within that perspective. I'm trying my best, Talisha, as well, to be as simple as I can. And sometimes for me, that is difficult because I'm, um, you know, I, I intellectualize it a little bit too much. But if, if I said it uh, like that, I hope you got what I just said. I think it's it, it's perfectly explained, and I think that is that is the point. Um, you know, how do you raise your child? Um, 
Yeah, I think uh, I hope that's a great lesson. I hope that that entire conversation we've started off with is a great lesson on how you go about, um, you know, raising um, the forebears of that 1860 generation, 160 years later, to empower them and emancipate them a little bit more. I'm going to go back to what. Yeah. One more thing. Yeah. I think you know. Uh, I've been dying to say this, and because I'm having a conversation with you, you now I must say. Um, you know, there's a, uh, there's a, uh, um, a very nice thing that I've read. Every generation has its own battle to fight, and every generation must leave its own mark. The thing we find ourselves in 2020, where young women, particularly young women of, of Indian descent, um, have a different cause to fight. There's a different cause that we need to champion, right? And if you have to locate back within um, the 16 days of activism and even beyond, we find ourselves now where we must take the basin from the forebears that came before and say, what becomes our cause today and how do we fight this cause? So when the time comes for people like myself, we have the younger generation to hand over the basin to the next generation, they have something to champion and to fight. And that's what I think is important. We must be able to pin it down to what becomes the cause of 2020 that we must be able to champion in a way that is, is revolutionary almost, or not even revolutionary, if I use the word revolutionary, I might just upset people, but it's advanced and radical enough that we take an entire generation of women forward. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Pamela, I... I I just, I just, I can't resist this joke. I mean, you say, you know, what is the main uh, sort of, um, you know, need in 2020? Maybe 2020 is a bad year to actually assess yeah. what the need is. <laughs> That's, we're going to come back to it, Pamela, because I definitely want to explore that point with you. Uh, but let's go to WhatsApp and let's canvas some views of the people we're talking about. Uh, Rani in Stangerman says, I think that much has changed in terms of education because many women are in powerful positions and careers. However, they still have a major role as a parent and many other household chores. Uh, Sandhya says, should Indian parents not take a hard look at how they are raising their kids in order to change these patriarchal views? I find that despite the gains made by women, the main caretaking role is still predominantly carried out by women who seem to perpetuate this uh, boy on the pedestal scenario. So yeah, that was something we were, you know, we started off talking about. Some voice notes I'll go to. Kogi Reddy's on uh, uh, WhatsApp. Hello? Good evening to you, Taresh. This is Kogi from Verlam. In my home, it's equal. It's the boy and the girl. I teach them to do equal things in the house because I don't think uh, we should always make it the girl's duty. In my home, my both boys also help with the house chores and even when visitors come to entertain visitors because today it's everything equal rights because I think we should teach both male and female to uh, do things around. And uh, Taresh, I am saluting our forefathers and I'm proud to say my grandfather brought a Tamil Tamil prayer from India and I learned it from my late dad. And I'm very, very proud. Whenever I go, I always remember that prayer that I was taught when I was about 12 years old. Bye Taresh, God bless. Thanks, Kogi. I'd love to hear that prayer one day. You must teach it to me now. Mr. Ian Govinda is on WhatsApp. Hello there, sir. Good afternoon, Taresh and the team. When the Indians arrived in Port Natal, both men and women worked on the shirking fields from dawn to dusk. After work, women prepared the meals and did the household chores. 
After indenture, the women did the household chores, raised the children, and controlled the purse strings. Women also assisted men on the fields. We come to present day when both the wife and the husband are employed, the resources are pooled, uh, houses have been purchased, loans paid, and their children are being educated. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Governor. It's wonderful to, to, to weigh in on, on that conversation. So, um, yes, Pamela, on that point, and, and, and you, you spoke about that cause, right? What is that cause in 2020 or currently, you know, like, I made that joke about 2020 being a bad year to look at. But I want to ask you now, though, uh, you know, what are the immediate challenges then specifically of Indian origin women? In South Africa, is it harder for them? Because on one hand, if they have to fight gender imbalances in their communities, in their homes, once they do that, educate themselves, get that that culture of I can do, I can be equal, I am enough, uh, then they have to go out into a global place where they represent a minority population group and then needing to make their mark. I mean, I know you're going to cite Kamala Harris as that uh, person who did it, but... That's just one person, right? And she's, you know, it's just one person. So my yeah, question to you is... Absolutely. Right? And so my question to you then, is it, is it harder for women of Indian origin today to make that mark, bake that patriarchy, and actually get their due for their capability? I think, uh, I think no matter where you're located on a global perspective, it is always going to be harder for a minority I think if you look at, you can look at many examples the world over and you'll come to that same conclusion, right? That it is going to be a lot harder for a minority because they're fighting against uh, many, 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 many different things. And I think obviously it's going to be harder for, for women of Indian origin, not just in South Africa, but I think the world over. But I think it also provides us with a nice sort of, I love challenges, Sarish. So I think it provides us with a nice set of challenges. I mean, if we look at the amount of advancement Indian women in South Africa have had, it's been amazing. I think if you look at the amount of accomplishments we have had, it has been tremendous. I mean, we, we can look at somebody like we like uh, Judge Navi Pillay, for instance. I mean, she's a global icon. We can look at our state uh, prosecutor, you know, Shamila Batuan. Yeah. That's an amazing achievement. And they've come from Indian backgrounds. And if we wanted to define them, which I'm sure they, I'm sure they wouldn't want to be defined by the fact that they are um, a particular race. They would be, want to be defined by their intellectual capacity more than anything else. But they've made great strides. So I think, uh, yes, uh, the, wherever you're located, you must be very honest and say if you are a minority, things are going to be a little bit tougher for you. If you go to the United States, you'll see that happening with Latinos. Um, if you go to... I mean, we happen to be the majority in India, so that won't really happen there. But it is going to be a little bit tougher, but I yeah. wouldn't say that we should look at it as a stumbling block. I think, in fact, we should look at it as a challenge and say that as Indian women, we have the courage to yeah. And it's definitely uh, something to work toward, you know? Let's go very far off. So let's, let's start with Lotus. Yeah. And let, let's look at, at some of the top. You know what I mean? Kudos to her for carrying and, and, and doing the amazing work she's doing there. Yeah. If you go to Mercury, you have Yogis Naya. Mm. So even though we're a minority, we are occupying positions of power and influence that mm. are solid enough 
to take any woman's yeah. um, cause forward. Yeah, and it's just an understanding of that, uh, of realizing and appreciating it. Um, and, and and yeah, thanks thanks for, for for raising it like that. That it's going to be challenging, but you know what? It can be done, and it, it comes down to that sort of work. Uh, let's come down to um, and and you know, I often find that, and I raised it with Dr. Devi Rajab as well, um, that we talk about you know when we talk about. Um, development and we talk about um, the success or the or, or the female narrative we often look at the success stories of those professional women who have made it and are doing great things you know i always wonder about that local woman in a local community you know somebody who doesn't have a tertiary education that is working a really um, arduous 16 um, hour shift a day and, and and really has to you know really battle the economic uh, challenge in order to to, to make it uh, these women often become um, more susceptible to gender-based violence correct me if I'm wrong um, and and I want to ask you as we you know talk about the 16 days of activism campaign what is the way to reach out to this woman who doesn't have an economic lifeline like the other professionals who possibly have a tertiary education behind them, who possibly have a driver's license, who can, you know, um, apply to any sort of position because they've got work experience, because they've got credentials behind them. What about that woman in the local fringe community? She's arguably more economically you know, dependent, isn't she? Yeah. I think that's where community activism comes into play. And where if we have active enough communities, um, they will provide um, a solid enough support system for these women to be able to come out of those destructive, violating uh, relationships. You see, if we had a model right now in every community where you had a safe home that was well resourced, where you have counselors, social workers on the ground, understanding their communities, responding to the needs of their communities, then a woman would feel safe enough to leave a destructive relationship knowing she was going to be covered almost, that she would have a safe haven to, to reach out knowing that her children would still be safe, she would still be able to provide a, a meal for her children, she would still be able to get on, on her feet and leave. A lot of women stay in relationships, sorry, simply because the fear exists. Like, if I leave this, what becomes of me? What becomes of my children? And that's why they are compelled to stay in those relationships. Not because they want to, but because they have to. So for me, it goes back to community activism. And community activism does not require a lot. You see what we've been able to do? We've been able to launch a consistent and dedicated help desk which reach out, reaches out to women even if you can't reach a government facility for instance you must be able to link up to some woman who can keep you for the day who will be able to provide you the necessary counseling will be able to get you to a safe home will be able to uh, take you to the social service get you to a court uh, deal with the issue immediately when the need arises. And that's where it goes back to. It goes back to active communities. It goes back to having activists in communities, taking up the challenges and running with it. So for me, I think uh, if we want to talk about it, I agree completely that, you know, a woman who is um, very, very economically challenged will find it a little bit more difficult. But I think if we have solid community activists 
doing the work, uh, we could a little bit eradicate the problem. Not completely, but it, it could yeah, become something yeah. where, you know, if, even if we worked in partnership with the other organizations mm. that existed, yeah. if we were able to drive government programs in a way that was concerted and dedicated enough, the resources are there, it's just... Pamela, I'll have to leave it there with you now. And I'm pretty certain that a woman packed foundation does a lot of this work. We've not been able to talk about that uh, completely in this hour because we were so caught up in in looking at those broader uh, issues. But the 16 days campaign is not over, isn't it? So we'll be connecting with you sometime soon. Thanks so much for having me, Cherish. Wonderful speaking to you. You as well, Pamela Padiatri. She's uh, one of the uh, founder members of the Women Pack Foundation. Very quickly, Vanita and Mabel says um, she thanks us for the program. Ben in Stanger says, uh, whatever is resisted definitely persists. So in my opinion, we don't uh, war against anything. If there is a need and women see it, just fulfill that need. There's no need to stand up and say, I'm a woman and I did this. Your life in itself will speak for itself. Serves encouragement for other women. Okay, so that's Ben's opinion. Mrs. Mohammed says, thank you for the informative program. Uh, we appreciate the annual um, commemoration. And um, I'd like to add to Sister Ayla Ramberan's, um viewpoint. Uh, my suggestion is that we need to, we are a multi-religious society, we should extract the values from all religions. And Rachel keeps telling me, Mr. N. Governor mentioned that women came to assist on the sugarcane fields. What was that, Rachel? No, no, no. We have to say this. Women that came on the ships in 1860 came as individual indentured laborers. They, so they have, didn't help? They, would... they didn't help. They have their own indentured laborer numbers. They were laborers. They signed the contract, etc. They were not assistant to the men. Well, thanks for clarifying that. Something very close to Rachel's heart that she just wanted to, to correct that. Thank you so much for everybody who contributed. We leave it there. Program came your way courtesy of the team. Executive producer Salma Patel and Rachel Vadi. From me, Tadesh, hey, have an awesome day. News break. Lotus FM, powered by SABC News.